It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A warning just before we begin. Some listeners may find some of what we're about to hear distressing. Also, this episode contains some strong language. These are the things that people need to understand. Not the fact that I'm not condoning what CJ was doing. There's this little boy, this playful character. There was also the other side to him. He was accused of robbery and carrying a bottle of corrosive acid. He was caught carrying a knife at a fun fair and convicted. I think I should just act like a normal teenager. As a parent, you just want to give your child a good start. What did you just say to me? Be prepared to lose. Can you hear me? Uh, hi, my name's John Simpson. I'm a journalist for the Times newspaper. I was hoping I could come up to speak to you very briefly. I'm back in Forest Gate in Newham, East London, near the playground where CJ Davis was shot dead. My producer Poppy and I are looking for witnesses on the surrounding estate. Just looking into the shooting of CJ Davis that was a few years ago. We're hoping they can tell us more about what happened that day and who was responsible. These conversations are best conducted face to face. So we're hoping residents will buzz us in. How you doing? Hey. We're handing out flyers with our contact details on. The flyer has the logo of the podcast, Who Killed CJ Davis? Beneath that, it says, a new podcast for the Times newspaper. We're seeking your help to get answers. If you have any information, please get in touch. You can remain anonymous. On Fleet Street, we call it the shoe leather approach. And we're here at the same time on the same day of the week as the shooting, 3 p.m. on a Monday. We're mimicking a police tactic in the hope that people still follow the same routines three years on. Yeah, we should get around the houses now. Yeah. We tried, that's one, one block. You could holler up there. We're at a four-storey block of flats that overlooks the spot where a metallic grey Range Rover pulled up that day in September 2017, and the shooter or shooters got out. I buzz another flat. Hello, uh, my name's John Simpson. I'm a journalist for the Times newspaper. Um, I'm working on something I, I was hoping to discuss with people who live in the area. Would you mind if I came up to have a very short conversation with you? I understand. Um, no luck so far. So let's pause a moment. There's a phone call you need to hear. I'm John Simpson, the crime correspondent for the Times. This is episode two of Who Killed C.J. Davis? I've been investigating the unsolved murder of C.J. Davis, a 14-year-old boy who was shot dead beside a playground in broad daylight in East London in September 2017. 
Today, we focus on CJ's descent into crime, how he was forced to leave mainstream education and attend a pupil referral unit, an experience which is part of a national crisis. The theory is that he was the victim of what gangs call a ride-out, venturing into rival territory to kill or maim their enemies. In the three years since he died, the wall of silence has stood firm and nobody's been charged with his murder. Hello, is that Bella? Yeah, hi. Is this, um, was it Chris? Was it Chris? J- John from the Times. John, sorry, my bad. <laughs> no, no worries. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Is now a good time to talk? Yeah, no, yeah that was fine. <laughs> Great. First of all, just want to say my condolences, and, and, and I know you, you've all been through a lot. Thank you. I appreciate it. Would you like to just start off by saying who you are, how you know CJ? I was CJ's long-time friend slash, like, I guess you could say girlfriend. His girlfriend, Bella, has agreed to speak publicly for the first time since his murder. We were all sitting down and then this boy, he was just like, does anybody want Chinese? He went and bought, like, my mum, my sister, me, him and his cousin Chinese. Like, no one asked him to do it. He obviously was 14, obviously, so... He doesn't really have a job, so he's not making money. So it's like savings and what he saved up. And I just don't know. I asked my mum, like, would remember him, like, first impressions, you know? He loves to make everybody happy. That was the first time CJ met Bella's mum. Bella was living in South London. On the day CJ died, she was expecting him to come down to her family home to see her that evening. But he never did. CJ was shot in the head in broad daylight at 3pm. I was just at home until I found out and I got a call and then I ended up at the hospital. So just talk, talk me through arriving in the, in, in the hospital and what you saw. It was horrible. And bearing in mind, it was the first time I was meeting his mum as well and all his family. So when we got there, it was like, I still didn't know what state he was in, like what was going on. Like I knew where he had been shot and I know that that is very slim chance that people survive headshots because when I got there and he didn't look the same either when I saw him in the hospital bed yeah. and all his family around it was like I was meeting all his family but then I was seeing him and it was horrible it was so horrible let's take a moment here and remember that Bella would have been no older than 14 that night a child I asked Bella if she's ever spoken to anyone who was with him that day no I, I really didn't really know anybody from Forest Gate. I didn't even know the Jamal person that he was with. I'm not even sure that CJ even knew the Jamal person like a lot. Yeah. Like, the person he was with. So he hadn't he hadn't he hadn't mentioned Jamal very much to you? No, never. I had never heard the boy's name. The boy that Bella and I are discussing is Jamal Reed. He was with CJ when he was shot. Jamal, who was seventeen at the time, survived with a shotgun wound to his leg. He's a key witness. He's currently in jail for drug offences. And as a journalist, that makes it very hard for me to speak to him. I've heard a hundred million stories from like the media, and I've seen things online that people have like bragged about shooting him, and nothing's like the videos and YouTube videos and songs that his name's been put into, and like people that have been bragging, but it's not really one person bragging, so you can't put a pinpoint on who has done it. Bella's referring to drill music videos. The whole block ain't done shit. And I was laughing when I saw the pick of a mum just bury a kid. 
It's a style of rap that uses urgent, uncompromising lyrics with common themes of murder, drug dealing or street violence. Since CJ died, there have been various songs from gang-affiliated drill rappers in the area, mocking his mother's grief. Warring street gangs invariably bound up in drug dealing are often defined by the estate or postcode they were formed in. They tend to fight for primacy or status, not for dominance in the drug trade. Crossing that boundary from one estate to another or into a rival postcode can cost these boys and young men their lives. And it gets in, real wanted, something that's happened to you and around you. Have you got, did you make an opinion on that? Did you, how did you, you see him in that? Honestly, in my opinion, like, all respects to like, how his mum feels and how, like, all his family feel, I didn't feel that he was being pressured or he wasn't being groomed into anything that he didn't want to do necessarily. If he was going to be about a certain way about in life, he knew what he was doing and he did it on his in his own will, if that makes sense. Yeah. In February 2017, seven months before he was killed, CJ was arrested at a funfair in South London. He was carrying a large knife. He told police he'd been threatened on social media, Snapchat, and he feared for his life. He was with his cousin and his godbrother and a few people from his dance school. That's CJ's mum, Keisha McLeod. At this point, she'd sent her son to live in South London with his uncles for safety. She was worried about the mounting evidence that he was being groomed to deal drugs. And apparently on Snapchat, there was a thing like, oh, I'm going to hurt you, I'm going to stab you. He was at my brother's house. He wasn't allowed to go nowhere. So my brother said, you can go to the fun fair. Now he's been told that somebody's going to stab him. He's not thinking, I'm not going to the fun fair because I haven't been out for three months. I still want to go to the fun fair. So what do I do? I'm going to arm myself. What does he arm himself with? My brother's a chef. A chef knife. You know how sharp those knives are. I couldn't believe it. The police saw and he got arrested. CJ was carrying a knife in his trousers. He was walking strangely. Police spotted him and carried out a stop and search. I was so angry at CJ. I said, you're letting your cousins feel like that's okay. I needed him to realise when you do things like this, the police will come down on you. And I think it's about time the police come down on you for you to understand what can happen. There is a a kind of line that he seemed to be crossing in his life at the time. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair, definitely. You know, I'm just trying to get inside his, his head a little bit. Did he ever seem, cause, and, and also in some, of his, um, in some of his psychotherapy sessions, he's quite open about um, being scared and being kind of worried about the choices he's making. But he never gave, gave you that impression. Not, no, I can say that he didn't give me the impression, but I feel like boys and men in general, it sounds just bad to say, but they don't really like to show off emotions, like scared emotions yeah. nowadays, because they seem to be dominant and whatever they're supposed to be. So Absolutely. I feel like even if he was, he probably wouldn't show it off like that to me. 
One evening, in the winter of 2016, Keisha was enrolling onto a health and social care course at Newham College. She got a call from her son. He was supposed to be home at six, so he's called me as I'm walking down my road. And he's gone, Mum, these boys told me I've got to sell drugs till nine. I'm like, what? Um, and the phone goes down. <sighs> I go home, I phone my other friend, there's a guy, John. And I said, CJ's just called me, can you come round here? And he goes, all right. And then CJ calls me back and I said, where are you? CJ said he'd been sent to deal drugs at a train station around 20 minutes from their house, an area called Maryland in the heart of Newham. I didn't know I need to hear any more. So I go at Uber and we're driven, dri- driving like we're driving up to Maryland, which is just up the top of this bit here. It's like five minutes drive. As I'm driving, I see CJ coming down on a bike. I shout out the car, CJ. CJ sees me and he stops and he goes behind a bush. So I stopped telling, because I was telling the Uber driver everything and he was just like, oh my God, I've got kids. I'd, boys, I said, yeah, this area is horrible. Get them out. Yeah, I'm just telling everybody. I get out of the car. I go into, um, I go behind the bush and he's got a rucksack. And I've gone, um, what's that? And I've looked in the bag. And it was, as I go home and I look further, it was crack and heroin. It was about £600 worth of crack and heroin. Rocks. And I said, CJ, if there's ever a moment in life, you should trust me, it's this moment right now. And he goes, no, mum, you don't, you don't understand, you don't know these boys. I said, I don't care. Listen, if there's ever a moment in life, I've got you. I've, I'll deal with this. And I said, give me the bag. You take your bike and you ride home. And he goes, okay. And I remember him riding home and me and John just run, running behind him. And I'm just like, oh, my God, great. This year, I remember it well now. He comes in the house, he puts his bike at the bottom of the house, comes upstairs, and all I, all I remember doing first is just hugging him because I was so happy for him calling me. I was absolutely grateful for that fact of, like, we've, had a, we've been having a struggling t- couple of months, but he's now just realising, actually, I don't want to be like this. Keisha flushed the drugs down the toilet. She now believes this left CJ in debt and in danger. Her well-intended intervention here a bid to protect him from the drug dealers, raise the stakes and thrust him further into a world of criminality. I'm thinking everything's cool. The following week, he's gone missing. At age 13, A year before his death, CJ's mother reported him missing after he failed to return home one night. He didn't come back for a week. We now believe CJ was selling drugs, part of what's known as county lines drug dealing. The line refers to a phone number given to users and addicts. They call an operator of sorts in the exporting city, in this case London. That operator then uses a separate line to arrange the deal in the county meaning that there's no obvious link between the dealer on the ground and the lucrative county line if he's arrested. The model has proved so successful that the National Crime Agency identified 3,000 separate lines last year. Each active line makes up to £800,000 annually. By those estimates, the industry's worth billions. The gangs use children, and thousands of young people have been safeguarded after being used as drug mules and dealers. During this investigation, we've learnt from one source that CJ wasn't alone. Another boy, who was in foster care, was also with him. We believe CJ, and maybe the other boy, had been ordered to travel. But we don't know by whom, and we don't know where they went. These are the things, like, even saying that, somebody sent my child somewhere. Are you f***ing kidding? 
kidding me? Like, I would love to see those people think, what is it you're thinking of when you think, what is it you're doing? I understand that there's, they're doing their old drug things, but how, how did you know that that boy would do it? We'll continue to try and track down the boy in foster care and establish where CJ went and why. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So if CJ's out of town dealing drugs, how did he get there? Has his mother inadvertently forced him into some kind of debt bondage? Has he chosen to go? Was he groomed? What were the various authorities involved doing as his slide into criminality sped up? Remember, Bella seemed convinced that CJ wasn't under any duress at the time. I didn't feel that he was being pressured or he wasn't being groomed into anything that he didn't want to do necessarily. So has CJ chosen to deal drugs? And to what extent could that choice have been manipulated? The tragedy really is nobody wants to know about those failures until the child has died. But there is enough pointers emerging constantly to suggest that it's heading towards a death. The voice you're hearing is the founder of the organisation Stop and Prevent Adolescent Criminal Exploitation, or SPACE. We can't reveal her identity due to the nature of her work. If you can point me in the direction of a 13-year-old who suddenly wakes up one morning and decides, OK, for my career choice, I'm going to be a drug runner. Who does that? She set up the organisation two years ago in response to the use of children and young people in county lines drug dealing. It's, it's not a pretty picture as to what's going on out there. Missing episodes tends to be one of the main stages when authorities are first triggered. But by this time, it is usually too late as the child is embedded and the grooming process that's driving the huge numbers of, of these children being lost to county lines is successful. And grooming is the silent driver and the silent killer. All these times all this is happening, I'm talking with police. I've been doing that all the time. I'm talking with social services of what's going on with my son because I don't know what to do. Because even when he ran away, that automatically gets known to the social services and they have to do this coming back home kind of thing. I wanted them to be involved. I wanted CJ to see, like, look, from you leave me, it's a completely different world out there. You don't have the love and support that you've got right now. And you can see now that this world that you're looking at is not as clean cut as it seems. Law enforcement and other authorities use a system called the National Referral Mechanism to protect victims of trafficking and labour exploitation. CJ was never entered onto that database, despite the suspicion that he'd been sent to deal drugs and his mother clearly stating to social services he'd been groomed by local drug dealers. What we're then seeing is parents are hitting a wall because they are reluctant to refer the, the exploited children in because they are being viewed as children who've made a lifestyle choice towards criminality because a lot of them are, of course, encountering services, statutory services, when things have gone wrong. So in other words, uh, they've been picked up dealing drugs. They've been encountered in a missing episode. When CJ returned from the week he spent missing, he'd changed. 
There was a flashpoint with his mum one evening when she told him he couldn't go out. I'm standing behind the door, front door. He's pushed me out of the way. I said, you pushed me. So we're, 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 we're tackling. I said, you know what? I'm not doing this. 999. <laughs> I'm not doing this. Social services are going to come and get you before I do that. I was trying to scare him. It was not a thing like, I want you to go to social services. I'm just trying another scare tactic. I'm looking back to my memory banks, what my mum did to me. <laughs> and that's one of the things she's done with me. I'm just trying anything. Police come, my brother comes, and my CJ goes, my mum hit me. And I said, yeah, I did, because he hit me. So the police are now saying, OK, we, CJ wants to make a statement. They're sitting in the front room with him. I'm there like, well, I don't know what to do. My mum's like, he's going social services. I'm like, my brother's like, no, he's not. He's coming with me. Let's just end this, squash that. The police said, is that OK? I said, yeah, that's fine. So he went with my brothers. We've got lots of parents where the child is making allegations of abuse against one or both parents and all sorts of other things to get them moved from the house and taken into care. So once they're in care, it's been hugely documented in the media that actually that is not a safe environment at all for these children. They're basically being put closer to the perpetrators. And it's a win-win for the perpetrators because they've got those annoying parents out the way who are ringing the police every five minutes, you know, when the child goes missing. And they don't want those sorts of parents involved. We do hear that you've got to listen to the voice of the child, rightly, in a lot of contexts. But sadly, within the county lines context, if you listen to the voice of the child, you are getting the voice of the groomer. It's a style of operating that is well known. We've been talking about it now for many years. And there is no excuse not to understand how these perpetrators operate and what their, their aims are in, in doing that. And yet, time and time again, we're seeing police and social workers completely aligning unwittingly with the perpetrators. So certainly in... CJ's death, it's heartbreaking because it is all of the same things that are ongoing today. CJ had ADHD as a child. In general, it was well managed and he was learning to cope at primary school. But when he moved to secondary school, he struggled. Halfway through the first year, he was on report all the time. <sighs> this is where I kind of get really upset with myself because I was a person that I expect everybody to look out for children um, and expect the best for them. So whatever they were saying, I was upholding. So if they said, oh, CJ didn't do this, correct, or and I'm looking at the report card, I'm, I'm agreeing with them, and I'm like, no, look, this is what you've done. This was just bringing the CJ into a bigger and bigger hole of despair for himself, I can only put it as. Then one day she went to a parents' evening. She was pleasantly surprised, almost confused. I just thought his education was just failing. I went to one at the ending of the first year. When I'm sitting down with these teachers, they're going, yeah, he, he is a bit of a handful, but when he's, when he's studying, he's really into it. He loves it and he's doing really well. And I was like, oh my gosh, so this is really good. So why are we, like, why, is there, why am I not hearing these things about him? Keisha was then told that CJ's persistently disruptive behaviour meant he would have to leave the school. But she believes the school had an agenda and did all they could to force him out. We contacted Forest Gate Community School who said their condolences and sympathies are with CJ's family. They added, During CJ's time at the school, he displayed very serious behavioural issues, which very quickly became unmanageable in a mainstream school setting. Pink highlighter marks. Who, who made those marks? He did. I'm sitting with Keisha at her home, folders strewn on the dining room table. We're looking through the report she was given by the school. Also highlighted is constant low-level disruption. 
child with ADHD. Yeah, being off task, talking loudly about other things, lying on his arms when I explain things, playing with money, eating in class. I remember one incident, he brought a comb in and they presumed, they said that it was a knife, but it was an Afro pit comb. That stayed on, I even remember looking at the chronological order of the reasons for them to exclude him. And that was still on there. And I was like, no, you're saying that he brought a knife to school. He never did. It was an Afro comb. So basically, he's been asked to leave the school. And they've advised me to that he needs to go to a PRU. It's a pupil referral unit. In recent years, there have been a lot of concerns around pupil referral units. The Children's Commissioner for England has warned that gangs will often turn to PRUs to recruit new members, either at the gates or in the classroom. There are serious worries among children's charities that exclusions are on the rise, forcing many young teenagers into PRUs. This, in essence, is what happened to CJ. A year after his death, in 2018, the charity Bernardo's published a report saying since 2014, there had been a 56% leap in exclusions from schools. I remember asking my dad, has things been coming to the house? And he goes, yeah, I thought it was for you. CJ was caught using his grandfather's address to order weapons. I said, no, Dad, it wasn't for me. I remember a Rambo knife being ordered and a bulletproof vest. Keish is convinced that he was ordering the weapons for people he'd met at the PRU, gang members. And that's when I was like, all these factors, I'm just bringing them to my family and we're just like, really, what is it we're going to have to do? So we've learned how CJ fits into a national picture, a well-trodden path of expulsion, PRU, and then gang life. Did you ever have a sense of it being this serious, like, you know, life and death in, mm-hmm. in his life? The fact that he carried a knife, to be honest, I don't think anybody would carry a knife for no reason. Mm-hmm. If you feel like that your life could be threatened as you're walking on the streets or that you're out on the roads, then there must be a reason as to why you're carrying a knife, if you get what I mean. Do you, how did you feel about him, you know? I thought about him, I loved him. Um, it's really, it's, it's a shame because I haven't really told anybody this before, but I haven't ever told him that. I didn't ever tell him that because, like, I don't know, I'm closed off with my emotions, but that's one thing I do regret and I always will regret that I didn't tell him that I loved him. But he, I'm sure he knew. Hi, what are you doing? Hi, I'm a, I'm a journalist for the Times newspaper. Okay. Uh, we're working on a, on a podcast series about a shooting that happened here a few years ago. Yeah. Young lad called CJ Davis. Yeah, I know. I found him. You found him? Yeah. Oh, gosh. How, how, how so? Sorry. At the beginning of this episode, you heard me knocking on doors with my producer, Poppy, trying to find people that knew something about CJ's death. We were standing by the spot where CJ was killed. A woman approached. She was walking her dog. She looked curious as we handed her a flyer. That's when she told us. She said she was the first to find CJ. I was coming on the corner there and I heard a bang and I said to myself, um, that can't be a car. It didn't sound like a car fire. And so I just put my shopping out, walked around and he was um, lying down there. He shot on the forehead. I never see it at the back of his head so somewhere. He's still alive. And some other people came and tried to keep him alive, but... Did he communicate at all when you reached No, no, he couldn't talk. Did he was just a lot of blood. No, no, I didn't know him before. Um, but he was only 14. 
a young boy. Him and his mate was just sitting on here, just um, talking and um, just being 14 year olds, you know. Had you noticed the group? Uh, was there a group of boys? No, no. There was only two of them there, but apparently yeah, there was a like a SUV jeep kind of over there, parked over there somewhere. I heard the shot when I come round. There was two of them. There was him lying there, but I heard there was two boys, and the other one ran off, and he got shot in his leg over there. Right, and but there, and no others around when you got hit. Nah, nah. Whoever shot him already fleed off, drove off, whatever. Because that was open at the time. Yeah. But now they've closed it, they're building flats over there, so they must have gone that way round. Ah, uh, oh, the back way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because that road used to go on to Stracy Road. Mm. It's like so, three years on from his death, we've now spoken to a woman who was there on the day. It sounds like she was one of the first if not the first, on the scene after CJ was killed. It's not much, but the visible trauma in her eyes and her nervous demeanour speak volumes of the impact of gangs and violence in the area. But if you knock hard enough and try hard enough, you can break down that wall of silence and maybe we can slowly get to the bottom of exactly who did kill CJ that day, back in September in 2017. However much he might have seemed a willing participant, CJ's story is familiar to people on the front line of child criminal exploitation because it follows the archetypal path. It seems fairly clear that there were missed opportunities for interventions and for CJ himself to turn back, even if he didn't see them. But in most other stories, children don't wind up getting shot in the head. Something bigger was happening. Even when CJ went missing a year before his death, a series of events had been set in motion. A brutal wave of violence between the gangs of Newham and East London. It would culminate in CJ's murder. Now we need to take a dive into the gangs of Newham. Hello? It'll be dangerous for him to speak out, so he'll be voiced by an actor. I need you to tell me a little bit about what was happening in Newham at the time. You... You've entered the underground world. That's something I've always said. There's, there's an underground world in London. There's a world within London, you understand me? There's a city within a city, you feel me? And you've entered that. This podcast was written and hosted by me, John Simpson, the crime correspondent for The Times. It's produced by Poppy Damon and Will Rowe. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Original music was composed by Cam Shuck. You can find his work at satellitestudios.co.uk. If you have any information about CJ's death, please contact us using the tips email, phone number, WhatsApp and Instagram in the podcast description. You can also contact the police. The information is also in the podcast description and they're offering a £20,000 reward. You can find us on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and more. This podcast was brought to you by the Stories of Our Times production team, a daily news podcast hosted by Manveen Rana and David Aronovich, bringing you one remarkable story told in depth each day, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's also now available on the Times radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for the Times Radio app on your app store.